0: For some time now, we have been studying in the Old Testament, looking at characters and the events there. As we have done so, there are some fundamental questions that are raised by the stories. For instance, when we were studying about Elijah, the question of Elijah is, does it matter what I believe? Now, you recall that story, I hope, how he challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest on Mount Carmel to determine whose God was the true God. And so they had the contest there. They made a sacrifice, and the prophets of Baal, first of all, went to Baal praying and asking him to consume the offering with fire. Nothing happened. After that, then Elijah prayed, and you know the story as to how that the fire fell from heaven, consumed the sacrifice. So, does it matter what I believe? The answer is yes, it does, because the prophets of Baal were killed after that contest. When we came to Micaiah, the question would be, does it matter who I listen to? Uh, In that story, Ahab wanted to take the land of Ramoth-Gilead. Jehoshaphat came and he asked him if he would join him in taking the land. One was king of the northern kingdom, one the king of the southern kingdom. Jehoshaphat said, well, I am one with you. Whatever you think we should do, then I am one with you. But is there a prophet of God that we might ask him? And Ahab at that point called the prophets of Baal 400 strong and asked them, should we go up to take Ramoth Gilead? And the prophets in unison said, yes, you are going to be successful if you go up to take the land. Jehoshaphat said, but is there not a prophet of God here? Is there not a prophet of Jehovah that we might inquire of him? He said, well, there's one guy, Micaiah. He never says anything good, but we can ask him. Well, Micaiah then was asked, should we go to battle? And his reply was, no, it is the wrong thing to do. Well, because Ahab wanted to go and take the land of Ramoth-Gilead, he listened to the prophets of Baal. He went to battle and he was killed in battle. So does it matter who I listen to? Yes, it does. Today we come to the story of Jehu, which is an interesting story. But the question there is, does it matter if I sin? Now, that is a debate that is going on even today. We have seen some high profile people in our society, Tiger Woods, John Edwards, and on and on the story would go. And we're very familiar with their sin, and so there is this debate, is there, is there really any such thing as sin? Is what they did sin? Is it a mistake? What is it? Does it matter if I sin? And that's what we're going to look at today. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Second Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1. Now Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, And go in and bid him arise from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting and he said, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, O captain. And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And you shall strike the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel." For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebad, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. Well, As we begin the story, there is a commission given to one of the sons of the prophets that he is to go and anoint Jehu to be the next king of Israel. That is a reminder in part to me that any time there is a need, God always has a person to meet the need. Whenever the Lord has an assignment, then He has someone to whom He can give the assignment. Now you'll notice in verse 1, It says, Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins, take this flask of oil in your hand, go to Ramoth-Gilead. In other words, Elisha is not going to be the one who anoints Jehu. It is going to be one of the sons of the prophets. So Elisha is not doing the anointing here. It's one of the sons of the prophets. It was an honorable assignment. Verse number 3. Take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and, says, and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. So this is an important assignment that has been given. He says, I want you to anoint the king, the one who is going to be the next king of Israel. So it then was an honorable assignment, but it was also a dangerous assignment. In verse number 3, the prophet says, now after you have done this, then I want you to flee. Don't, don't stay and talk. Don't have time for fellowship. Once you have done this, then you are going to need to flee. You see, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes we think that if we are doing God's will, then we are exempt from danger. Sometimes we think that if we are doing what God has led us to do, then there are no issues of danger confronting us, but that has never been so. You might recall when the Lord said to Samuel, I want you to go and anoint David as the next king. You understand that Saul was still on the throne at that time. So that is not a good position in which to be. He said, I want you to anoint David as the next king with the king still on the throne. And so the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, 2, but Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. This is a dangerous assignment that has been given. And Elisha gave explicit instruction as to exactly what he wanted this young man to do. He gave him the oil in verse number 1. He says, Gird up your loins, take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. You might recall that When Solomon was anointed as the king, that he he was anointed with oil from the temple. But that oil is no longer available. However, oil that came from the hand of the prophet was equivalent to that oil. So he gave him the oil. He also gave him the words to say there in verse number 3 again. He says, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. So that's what he was supposed to say. When you go, Thus says the Lord... I have anointed you king over Israel. So he gave him the anointing oil, he gave him the words, and he gave him orders as to how it was to be done. Verse number two, it's to be private. When you arrive there, search out Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshai, and go in and bid him arise from among his bid him arise from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room. Now see, this was a private anointing. Why? Because it was exclusively an assignment for Jehu. God had called him. He hadn't called someone else to this task. It was done privately because it was exclusive. It was to be done expeditiously. After you've done it, then flee. After you have anointed him, then you are to leave. So the commission was given and fulfilled in verse number 4. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. So he, he goes to fulfill the assignment that has been given to him. And he does so... "...in the authority of the God of Israel." In verse number 6, he says, "...thus says the Lord, the God of Israel." So the message then was from God. So the young prophet goes, the son of the prophet goes. He goes in the authority of the God of Israel to speak to Israel of God. Verse number 6 continues, "...I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord." Matthew Henry wrote, "...though the people of Israel were wretchedly corrupted and had forfeited all the honor of relationship to God, yet they are here called the people of the Lord." So, what we have here is that God, the God of Israel, is sending a message to His people, the people of God. So, here is the prophet given his assignment, he is given the oil... He is given the words to say, he is told how it's to be done, and so he goes in the authority of God. Now here's the instruction to Jehu, verse number seven. And you shall strike the house of Ahab your master. Now this is the, this is the instruction to the new king. You shall strike the house of Ahab your master that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the ser- servants of the Lord. "...at the hand of Jezebel." Now, what was the crime? He said, you are to strike the house of Ahab. What was the crime that was condemned? They had shed the blood of God's servants. They have shed the blood of God's servants, and therefore there is going to be judgment. Verse number 8, "...for the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person both bond and free in Israel." Now, as he is getting his assignment, this new king, he said, "You are to go to the house of Ahab, and it will perish. It's not going to be corrected. There's there's going to be no pity. There is no mercy." He said, "They are going to perish. That is why I've anointed you as the king. They will be cut off and rooted out." Now, that's what he says here. So, the assignment now comes to Jehu. Well, what about the messenger? The one who brought the message, the son of the prophet, what happened? Well, he was held in contempt. Look at verse number 11. Now, Jehu came out to the servants. This is after the son of the prophet has been in to give him his anointing, his assignment, and so forth. Now, he came out, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? In other words, the, the, the son of the prophet had come in, taken Jehu alone, when Jehu comes back, those who were with him said, What did this nut job want with you? What was this crazy man doing here? This, this mad man. What, 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 what was it that he wanted? What was he doing here? But folks, did you know that is the way the prophets were usually seen? In fact, the Bible says in Hosea chapter 9 verse number 7, The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented. That was not unusual for a prophet of God. And, and sometimes, whenever you read about some of the strange things that they did, uh, you understand why people would think that they were crazy. But you can go through the, uh, the Old Testament and find some of their assignments and some of their things. As they were giving visual pictures to the people, sometimes they appeared to be mad people. But, even Jesus was held in contempt by those He came to save. So we look at the Son of the prophet, and He was said to be a madman, but Jesus was also held in contempt in Mark chapter 3, verse number 21. And when His, speaking of Jesus, and when His own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of Him, for they were saying, He has lost His senses. They went on to say that He is possessed by Beelzebub. So, even Jesus was seen to have been someone who had lost his senses. He was out of his mind. Now, John the Baptist didn't fare any better. In Matthew chapter 11, verse number 18, Jesus said, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. So, here's John the Baptist, who is proclaiming the message of God, and the people heard the message that he had delivered, and they said, He is demon-possessed. He is someone who has a demon. Uh, The Apostle Paul was uh, derided as well when he witnessed to Festus. In Acts chapter 26, verse 24, And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. So Paul was telling Festus about Jesus and how to be a believer. He was witnessing to Festus and as Festus listened to the message, he said, Paul, you are out of your mind. Much learning doth make thee mad. You have lost it, Paul. I know that you're a smart man, but you have lost it here. Now, that is generally the way the messenger of God has been received. So let me ask you a question. Should we expect the world to approve us and our message when we speak for God. If you are expecting that, dear friend, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Because as His messenger, they are going to think that you are mad, and they are going to think that the message is nonsense. Whenever we stand before the world and say to them that God expects sexual purity... When we stand before the world and say that as a believer, as a Christian, I'm supposed to love those who do not love me. I am supposed to be kind to those who are not kind to me. And that sin does matter. Then the world says, you know those people over there? It's a good thing they're in those four walls because we better not let them out. Something is wrong with those people. But that has always been the response of the world to the message of God, Now, he is going now to deliver the message to Joram. And uh, Joram is dangerous, and uh, the prophet has been held in contempt as a madman, but there is always the danger. You see, Joram was the king. He was the current king of Israel. In fact, the Davis Dictionary of the Bible says, On the death of his elder brother Ahaziah, he succeeded to the throne in 853 B.C. and reigned until 842 B.C. All right, so Joram, to whom he is to go, Jehu is to go to Joram, he is the king. Not only is he the king, that means he has the army. That means he has the power. So this is a dangerous assignment that has been given, not just to the prophet, but to Jehu, who is going to be the next king. Well, what happened? What happened when Jehu went to confront Joram? What was the consequence at that time? Well, he was spotted before he got there by the watchman on verse number 17. He wasn't recognized. Now, the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel. He saw the company of Jehu as he came. Now, he didn't recognize that it was Jehu. He saw a bunch of people coming. The watchman on the wall saw a bunch of people coming. Didn't know who, they, who it was. He didn't recognize him. It was just a company of people. But then verse number 20b is a little bit amusing to me. He says, but the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshai, for he drives furiously. So he didn't recognize that it was Jehu who was coming, but he recognized his driving. He saw the dust coming up. He said, that he drives like a Baptist preacher. He said, I, I've... It's got, to be, it's got to be Jehu who's coming because he drives furiously. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means with a chariot and some horses, but he was driving furiously. So he recognized his driving from a distance, though he saw him at first as a company. Now, Joram goes out to meet him. Verse number 21. Then Joram said, Get ready. And they made his chariot ready. And Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now here's the irony. Joram goes out to meet Jehu in the field of Naboth. Joram's father Ahab wanted the vineyard for himself, and he tried to buy it from Naboth. Naboth would not sell it. So the Bible says in 1 Kings 21, verse 4, So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. So the king then wanted the vineyard that belonged to Naboth. Naboth said, No, that's my inheritance. I will not sell that to you. You can't have it. Now, the king came in as a mature adult, got in his bed, faced the wall, began to whine, pout, you know. You know how it is whenever your kids want something you don't get it for them? That's what he's doing. He's in there. He's pouting because he wanted that feel, and Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. Well, his wife, Ahab's wife, was Jezebel. She said, don't worry about it. I'll get it for you. 1 Kings 21 verse 7, and Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So when he came in, he's pouting in bed, facing the wall, because he wanted the vineyard. And when his wife sees it, she says, Aren't you the king? I mean, you're the man with the army. You are the king. Well, don't worry about it. I will get it for you. And she arranged for Naboth to be stoned to death. So Naboth was stoned. He was killed. So God is sending judgment. And that's what this is all about. God is sending judgment. The Joram, there's a question in verse number 22. It came about when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he goes out to see him and he says, Are you coming in Peace. One of the commentators says, It is very common for great sinners, even when they are upon the brink of ruin, to flatter themselves with an opinion that all is well with them, and to cry peace to themselves. That's what Joram does. He comes out. He is in the field that had belonged to Naboth. And he said, Did you come in peace? Now look at the reply in verse number 22 as it continues. And he answered, What peace? So long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. Matthew Henry wrote, the way of sin can never be the way of peace. And that's what Jehu is saying. Joram comes out, is it peace? There's no peace. There is judgment. So you see in verse number 24, Jehu drew his bow with his full strength And shot Joram between his arms, and the arrow went through his heart, and he sank in his chariot. There is judgment. And as a result, now there is justice. Verse number 26. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord. And I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. So Naboth is now avenged. He was stoned to death because he would not sell the property, and now then God avenges him. But the judgment is not finished. There is still Jezebel, the mother of Joram. Look at verse number 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. Now, there is a confrontation with the mother of Joram. And it's interesting to me, and I'm sure there are many interpretations given to it, but she didn't go into hiding. She exposed herself in that she was looking out the window, so she didn't hide. Not only that, but I think there's a certain amount of pride. It says she painted her eyes and adorned her head. So she puts on her makeup. Joel Ram is coming, she's putting on her makeup, she's sitting there in that, so she is watching him, she knows that he is there. She 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 wants to look nice when he comes. I read one commentator that said, I'm not sure if she was trying to impress Jehu or prepare for her own funeral. But well, I don't know what it was either, but she looked good. I mean she she gets all dressed up and uh Jehu comes. She threatens him in verse number thirty one. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? You see, Zimri had been a conspirator who came to the throne through uh, conspiracy, and it didn't go well for him. So that's what she's doing. She is referring him back to Zimri. Zimri came to the throne like you are. How did it go for him? Matthew Henry wrote, Had Zimri peace? No, he had not. He came to the throne by blood and treachery, and within seven days was constrained to burn the palace over his head and himself in it, and canst thou expect to fare any better. Now, that's what she was saying to Jehu. Just as it happened to Zimri, who came to the throne through blood, so it's going to happen to you. But it didn't work out that way. Verse number 33. And he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. And he trampled her underfoot. God's justice was sure. So, right, so what we're seeing here is God's judgment for the sin. There was Joram, the king. There's Jezebel, the mother. But the judgment is not complete yet. You'll know back in verse number 8, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish. So it's not complete. In chapter 10, Jehu sent letters to to those people who had raised the sons of Ahab. There were 70 sons. And he said to them, now here's the deal. This is what you can do. You can choose one of those sons to be the leader and protect the royal family. Or you can kill them and join me. Well, they killed them and joined him. They gave loyalty to to, uh, uh, Jehu instead. So the 70 sons now of Ahab are dead as well. But the judgment was not yet complete. There were the worshipers of Baal. Jehu used some deceit at this point because he contacted the worshipers of Baal and said to them that he had become a convert to Baal. And so he said, Join me at the temple of Baal and we'll have a celebration. Well, all the worshipers of Baal came to the temple of Baal for celebration. And when they got there... He killed all of them. So there is judgment. So does sin matter? That's, that's the question. Does sin matter? You see, here's, here's my concern and, and uh, about sin, is that we have become very comfortable with sin. We tolerate sin. We're, we're comfortable with sin. In fact, we seldom even use the word sin anymore. My daughter was telling me about a Bible study that she's in, and I think the last time the word sin was used in a State of the Union address was back in the 1950s. I mean, our problem is sin, but no one is willing to call sin, sin. We have become comfortable with it. We, we don't murder. We, you know, we like to, but we don't. We, uh, we don't steal big things. We don't lie, and if we do, then it's just a little white lie. We don't commit adultery anymore. We have affairs. It's been interesting to me as I have heard the, the commentators talking about the sins of of uh, some of these personalities that I had mentioned. They were, you know, I mean, they, they refer to selfishness. They, were, you know, I mean, he's a jerk. All of those things. But nobody says that it is sin. God calls it sin, and it is very important to Him, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, You and I, and even in the church, we we get very comfortable with sin and the sins of our lives, whatever they are. We become comfortable with our sin. Do you know how important sin is to God? Sin caused His only Son, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Sin is so significant to God because it required His Son to die on the cross for our sins. He gave his son that sins' debt might be paid. And that's what the Bible says that that on the cross that all of my transgressions, all of my iniquities were placed on the cross. Jesus died that our sins might be forgiven. And that's what I want to I want you to look, I want you to listen that that no matter what sin is in your life, it is, it is serious to God. But Jesus Christ gave His life that you can be forgiven, that I can be forgiven. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Jesus gave His life that we might be forgiven of our sin. In fact, in my devotional time this morning, I was reading in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 18 says this. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. That's what Jesus did. Sin is very important. It is very consequential. It cost Jesus his life, but because Jesus gave his life, you and I can be forgiven of our sin. Have you ever been forgiven of your sin, or are you trying to live your life in your sin. you'll never find satisfaction there. I care not who you are. Let me encourage you today that you come to Jesus to let him forgive you of sin. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, would you allow the Holy Spirit just to examine your heart right now? Is there sin in your life with which you become comfortable? Would you confess it to the Lord and ask His forgiveness? If you have never invited Christ to forgive you of all sin to come into your life, would you do that today? Our Father and God, we come to You, lifting these up to You and asking, Father, that You speak to hearts by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we have become so comfortable with sin that it oftentimes doesn't even bother us. Make us sensitive. Bring conviction to our hearts. Even this day, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please. As we stand together, the choir's going to sing. My friend, if you're here without Christ, would you come to receive Him today? The staff will be here to receive you and pray with you. If you're looking for a church home doors are open to you, would you come? As the choir sings, you come, I'll greet you as you do.